If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about the intersection between a customer lifetime value and AI, specifically machine learning and deep learning within the category of AI. And to help me discuss this topic today is Ash Duper. Ash is the Chief Analytics Officer at Publishers Clearinghouse and hands down one of the most knowledgeable people I've run across on this topic. Ash, welcome to the show. Hello, Allison, and thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Now, I see you have a background in market research and competitive research, and I have to say, I attended a conference that will remain nameless of, I think it's called Customer Intelligence, CI Professionals, and they knew nothing about big data or any kind of real data sources. How on earth did you get from market research into the complicated field of AI and machine learning, et cetera? Sure. I think I've been on a journey for the last 20 years in the analytics field. My first startup was a market research firm. So even though we would say primary research, some may argue that it's not analytics, but it is analytics. And you are doing simulations even if you're doing primary research. But anyway, I've done two startups, both in the analytics field, uh, work for uh, NPD, which is uh, one of the largest research organizations for non-CPG-related goods, and then here at PCH. Oh, that's a nice path. I want to pick up what you said about primary research because I want to make sure everybody understands what that is. Sometimes we get lost in big data and all the big data terms. Can you elaborate just for a minute about what primary research actually includes? Sure. I think in the old school world, before the big data, if you wanted to know anything about your customers, the primary research was about going and talking and talking to them in terms of whether you would do surveys through telephones or, well, more recently through online qualitative and and all that fun stuff. When you were in that field, statistics was part and parcel of our lives of whether you are understanding customers' preferences and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think that's gone away a little bit or, we, or do you still use that at PCH? Well, we still use at PCH, but I think the abundance of data that is available now and the sources from where you can derive the information about your customers and how fast you can work with that data, that has grown tremendously, right? If you think about 
laws of statistics actually haven't changed in last hundred years. I can say that. But what has really changed is really the availability of the data and the availability of the computing power that is available to us that has changed. For better or for worse. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I, I mean, chief analytics officer is a big spread. Tell me a little bit more about the various aspects of what your team covers and and also help me understand where you report into the company because that sometimes controls what you can and can't do in with an analytics team. Sure. So at PCH, the analytics department has three different teams. One is our insights team, which includes the primary research. And the insights team is primarily working hand-in-hand with the business owners on a day-to-day basis. So there are different P&L owners across the company, and each of the P&L owner has been assigned a set of analysts who are helping them in a non-biased way with as much customer information as possible with a clear mindset of what information are we providing these business owners to make progress in their business focus on how do we increase either customer engagement or loyalty or ultimately all it boils down is to the bottom line of the PL owner. So that's the insights piece. Then I have the next team is my BI reporting team. And just as you know, when I started at the company, we have 3000 reports that some <laughs> use and some don't. I mean, we, whosoever has, has inherited legacy systems, they understand that reporting has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reports that some people look at and some have never looked at that report after it was created. So the key change that we brought in the reporting team was the word KPI. Mm-hmm. And and truly, we work with business owners to say, what is it that you're looking for as a KPI in your business? You cannot have 100 KPIs. If you're going more than six or seven KPIs, you're probably, you're lost in the forest. So let's work on what are the key areas that we should focus on so that you can, A, keep a tab on the business. You're doing good, bad, or ugly. And it is giving you some directions of if you're making changes, are those key KPIs changing or not? So that's the reporting team. And in terms of relationship, we have actually, we used to have a reporting team separately reporting into me, but we realized that if the reporting team works primarily with the insights team, that is a perfect combination. So that's the insights piece. And then the last team is the algorithm and sciences team, which is building algorithms. And we at PCH use a lot of algorithms to make our decisions, to change our customer experience, to optimize what we are doing. And we will probably talk about it later in the podcast about that. Got it. Got it. And then where do you report in in the organization? So I've been lucky. I've been part of the C-suite. And my CEO, hats off to him, he had recognized that, you know, analytics is a key part of the organization. So being, having a seat at the table definitely helps. It helps you work with your peers, even the senior peers, so that you can actually influence and make things happen in a much faster way. 
Mm-hmm. How you get stuff done. I hear you. And I love the balance of your team because from marketing analytics perspective, you have the traditional areas of insights and reporting, but then you also have the areas of algorithms and sciences. And let's talk a little bit about that because I suspect that that side of the business, the AI side, is where there's a lot of new interest, new insights coming through. So for people who aren't that familiar with AI or perhaps don't have a really crisp definition of it, why should they care about AI, particularly within a marketing aspect? Is it just hype like big data was or does it actually have real impact? I don't want to go into impact just yet, but help me understand a little bit about what it is in relation to marketing. Sure. You know, I would say the fantasy fiction charm and the promise of AI has kept the scientist community in pursuing AI for the last 70 years. And if you look at the history, there has been hot and cold times since its inceptions in 1950s. So AI is not new, as all of us would know. And, you know, we went through a cold period of what you would say is in the 80s and 90s, where AI was more as a hype. And that hype was actually sustained by, um, I would say, thanks to Hollywood, where a lot of movies that were there who kept the fantasy and fiction of AI moving along. I remember that movie about the little boy, right? The AI little boy. There you go. And there are quite a few of those movies out there that kept us in even till now. However, what's important is for us in marketing, especially, I mean, what is AI? And in simple terms, I would say it's making computers learn the way humans can think and solve problems. In technical terms, AI has two fields, machine learning and deep learning. Both these fields of AI are actually affecting our everyday lives and will continue to affect in major ways in my mind in the next years to come. And to give you common examples, the machine learning, if you go and buy something on Amazon, you do see at the bottom saying people who bought this also bought this, right? Mm-hmm. So that, those are your typical recommendation engines. Those recommendation engines are actually being powered by machine learning algorithms. If you look at the work that is coming out on and from the self-driving cars, that is a field that is highly influenced by deep learning because there is a multitude of data that needs to be taken in and analyzed in a split second to make those decisions. And that's where all the deep learning work is happening. And if not self-driving cars, some of the customer service areas is what I would also say is related to deep learning. Would you say one is easier or harder than the other? I would say machine learning for now is easier for two reasons. Because machine learning primarily deals with structured data, primarily. In most of the cases, especially in the marketing areas, you're dealing with all the structured data. Finding talent, people who have done machine learning, because machine learning technically is not all that new. You know, the algorithms behind that 
have been used in a while. So there is talent who knows and understands the machining part of it. So it's easier to do that. I just want to uh, piggyback other... on what you're saying for a second. So structured data is your common row and column data, like an Excel spreadsheet is structured data. And so historically, examples of structured data might be a customer record in a CRM system. Would that be a good example? Yes, all the data... Yes, all the data that sits in rows and columns essentially is what I would say is structured data. And I would also argue that this is probably smaller volumes of data. Would you agree? No. The, I mean, earlier, I would say if you were talking about this 20 years ago, then smaller volumes of data would kind of be the norm. But today, the volume of data doesn't matter because of the sheer computing power that is available to us. Okay, gotcha. And the computing power truly has changed in, I would say, 20 years ago, or if you really want to go back to the times of NASA launched the first Apollo version, the computing power in that system is very similar, or in fact, your iPhone today has more computing power than what NASA had at that time. Isn't that amazing? And I researched it, and it is amazing. The volume of data doesn't matter these days whether you have a terabyte or 50 terabytes because you have the computing power that can sift through that data pretty fast. Okay. And would you also argue that because we have more computing power, AI has become hot again, whereas maybe in the 80s and 90s it was suffering from hype because the computing power wasn't there? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I think the introduction of big data as it was as archaic as it sounds right now, but the introduction of the big data in back in, I think, 2010, 8, 9, 10 timeframe is where I think things started changing because you were able to put a bunch of servers together to take the data and run them through algorithms without any major problems. Mm -hmm. So how does that relate to deep learning then? Okay, so deep learning, I would say, is primarily works well when you have unstructured data. So let's talk about an unstructured data. What you and I are doing right now is unstructured data, mm -hmm. right? I'm talking to you, you're talking to me. It cannot be put in rows and columns. Mm -hmm. So if a machine has to interpret what I'm talking right now, imagine the algorithms behind it is, A, it, you have to make a computer learn what a sentence really is, what does it mean, positive, negative, and so on and so forth. The customer service systems are utilizing these deep learning algorithms because there's a lot of teaching of the deep learning algorithm has been happening for these algorithms. Okay. So that's where your deep learning algorithms are more powerful because it is taking a lot of unstructured data and then learning through that process of unstructured data and making some either predictive decisions or live decisions at that particular moment. Got it. So now it's fast and powerful. Now you can combine, yes, and you can combine, I mean, deep learning will also be able to combine uh, your structured and unstructured data together to get to whatever you're trying to, whatever business problem that you're trying to solve. 
Okay, so that makes sense. Thank you for that definition that helps us really understand the difference between the two because I think like many people, you don't always think about them in structure. You hear almost interchangeably AI, machine learning, deep learning. So it's very helpful to have that structured data. <laughs> so what kind of AI techniques apply in marketing? I think that's a pretty broad question. I would say you can apply it in different ways, in different situations, different techniques can be applied. But I think the best would be if I could give you examples of what we've been doing here at PCH. Would that make sense? That sounds great. Okay. The use of AI ultimately is what business problem you're trying to solve. We don't do in marketing or at least as practitioners, we are not doing academic research but ultimately our jobs are to help the organizations give better experience to our customers or contribute to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So in each of those cases, you are basically trying to solve a business problem. In our case, we looked at attribution as one of the problems. Now, you're aware of attribution or should I give you a little more details on that? I think most people understand attribution, but briefly, when we talk about attribution, we're talking about what channel drove the effect, the desired effect that you're looking for, whether it's conversion or whether it's a certain type of experience. Perfect. So I won't go into too much details about attribution. So attribution was a problem for us. We spent about $40 million in our paid media acquisition, and we spent about another $40 million on our TV advertising. Now, so that's about $80 million that we are spending on a yearly basis. And the problem of attribution is important to understand from two perspectives. A, within each of those spends, you know, within the digital paid media side, are we optimizing what we have, what we are spending, and similarly in the TV side. And in an ideal world, if you are the CEO sitting out there and saying, okay, I'm spending $80 million, where should I, for the next year or next two years or three years, where should the money go? Should I start shifting more into digital media because you know that is becoming more effective and TV is not? Or should I grow both and so on and so forth? Right? So those are some of the areas that you would want to know and get behind. So, Ash, just to clarify for a minute, I understand what Publishers Clearinghouse is, but what were you advertising? So, ultimately, we are an interactive media company who has, and our customers are engaged with us so that they have a chance to win with whatever we are doing. As a company, we offer digital entertainment, which is free-to-play games, and we offer shopping as an entertainment experience because most of the purchases that are made on PCH are primarily impulse-driven. No one gets up in the morning and say, hey, I need to buy that kitchen item that I let me go and buy on PCH.com. So Got these it. are all impulse-driven items, right? Got it. That's what PCH does. Now, what you also know, PCH, is we are a big sweepstakes company. This is all what is happening is under the umbrella of sweepstakes. So six times a year, we promote our big events. And an event is $7,000 a week for life or forever or a $10 million prize and so on and so forth. So that's what the sweepstakes is being promoted. And when we are promoting those sweepstakes, we are either advertising on TV, hey, that event is on, 
or we are going on the digital paid media side so that we can get customers from the digital side as well. Got it. Sounds good. Sign me up. 7K for life. <laughs> so with that in mind, we wanted to understand how do we start looking at the digital paid media side and say, what do we want to do? How do we want to optimize that 40 million in spend? A typical attribution solution will take you through the approach of the last click versus multi-click and so on and so forth. There are different techniques of how you, you can assign attribution. So what we did was we thought this through and we said conversion is conversion to, which is in our terms, would be opting into an email program for PCH or you know opting in into the sweepstakes. Is that a conversion event? And we said, well, you know what? It doesn't make sense if we just did it at the conversion level because, you know, you spend $40 million, someone comes in and converts on your site. If that is your measure of success, I think we're doing something wrong out here. Mm. Now, this is where we brought the concept of lifetime value. In any business, let's just stop after conversion, what happens? Any business, you know, there's an 80-20 rule. 80% of your customers are only going to make 20% of your revenue. So if you take that into account, if we start thinking a little more granular than just the conversion is not just conversion, but conversion into lifetime value, is that's how we started solving the problem of attribution. So what we did, we built about lifetime value models for a customer who just landed on our site and who just registered. So on days, we call it day zero, can I predict the lifetime value of a customer who just came and registered on pch.com? I just want to point that out for a second because most people don't think about that as a conversion event because it's not a purchase. But what you're saying there that's so fascinating and so interesting is you're able to take the engagement that they have illustrated and tie it to LTV. I think that's incredible. Yes, and that's exactly what we're trying to do here. So the business implications of this, before I go into some of the modeling part of it, is let's say the paid media analyst just spent $500,000 on a campaign on Facebook, and they want to know what was my conversion rate, but they don't, plus they also want to know what's the lifetime value of a customer mm-hmm. who's coming from Facebook. You may get very high conversion rate from Facebook, but are you getting high lifetime value from that source or not? Facebook is just as an example. It could be any source because there the campaigns are run on many different sources when you're spending that much money. This is a critical information that they have in their hands and they say, you know what? I can spend more today on this source because the lifetime value of the customer is way high when they're coming from this specific source. And I should spend less on that source because that specific one because the LTVs are pretty low from people coming from that source. Now, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? In other words, if I market really heavily to a certain channel, am I going to get higher LTV? Is your question on if I'm advertising heavily? Yes. Sorry, if I'm advertising really heavily on a specific channel, am I naturally going to get higher LTV? No. You may get higher conversions. You may get higher volume of people landing on your site. Because advertising will drive two things in a typical scenario, or three or four things. But, you know, primarily what matters is, besides building your brand when you're advertising, will draw a customer to your website. The second event which is important is uh, the person actually converts or 
registers with us in our case. And the third piece is how they, from there on, they engage with us for a long time. Mm-hmm. So those are the three different events. Now, a typical advertising, you know, you did a campaign and you had a million impressions and guess what? You drove 10,000 people. You got a pretty good number of people to come in on your site. You drew them on. But if a person comes to your site and does nothing, that money is basically down the drain, right? Mm-hmm. So you take that same concept all the way to the lifetime value of the customer. And what we have seen is if you advertise heavily in one area, do they actually correlate to a high lifetime value? No, it doesn't happen. So now how does this whole thing help and where where does the machine learning comes into play? So we built models which takes into account every single activity of the person that we know from the time they come on the site, not only from the time they come on the site, but what email address you have on the site. For example, if you have an EDU email address from which you are registering on the site versus a Gmail address, it has an influence and it has a predictable predictability of what your lifetime value could be. Wow. Yes. So we take that into account. There are about 180 separate models that run. These are what I call as the micro models that run on a nightly basis, which ultimately covers every single person who's on the site. And they are, when I say nightly basis, we are, because these are machine learning, self-learning algorithms, every day their activity feeds in into their lifetime value. So you know, if we have false positives up front of saying, hey, this guy looks like a pretty high LTV person, but two days from now, their activity is actually like someone with a pretty crappy LTV that kicks in and the self-learning part of the algorithms is taking in and saying, hey, Ash looks pretty crappy. Whatever LTV you attributed to him is changing. Got it. Can the marketers respond that fast? Let's say that I've got people flowing into different LTV classes, and I realize the LTV would actually be a a statistical propensity. That's usually how it surfaces. But many people tend to classify it into high value, low value, and other valuations. So for the marketer to make an adjustment And that you've got this dynamic nature flowing around, which on top of the question I'm asking, there's even another question behind it about the sheer volume of what you're able to compute in a 24-hour period. Hold on for a second. Can I, as a marketer, make changes fast enough to respond to how fast people are moving around? How do you use that information? Oh, so that's a good question. I think the, uh, the paid media acquisition team is all over this data. So now what happens is these models are, you obviously you have to aggregate all of this data, right, all together. So for a marketer or so for the paid media analyst, what they are saying is they have a budget to work on, that $40 million budget, and they're saying I have to spend this $500,000. What they do is they would say, let me spend $50,000 on this source. Look at the lifetime value of this customer on day one, day two, of this source in you know the next three days, next five days, seven days. And they have the ability to say that at any point of time, I can cut the data and say, am I getting some craziness on the $50,000 that I spent on this? Is my LTV still holding out or not? Oh, wow. So day seven, yeah, day seven, you say, hey, you know what? The source 
is starting to what the spend that you did on this 50,000 is not really high LTV, but pretty crappy LTV. They know that next time I'm spending on this, I'm not spending that 50,000. I'm going to cut it down a level where I can optimize the spend with that source. So are they kind of looking at trend lines? Is it common to see an initial pop of maybe good quality and then see it drop off? Or is it more like you could see any kind of trend line on any source? You can see any kind of trend line on any sources, but you know, some of the places there are going to be sources that are pretty stable. They are pretty good. And there are sources that you know, right? I shouldn't be spending a lot on those. So the data is being utilized. That's the beauty of it is they have a whole reporting tool on top of these algorithms and the lifetime values that are being scored on an IP basis. They can look at the data in any cut that they want to. Nice. So you've really armed them to make good decisions. And you've also helped them not rely on the source itself that they're advertising at, which always bothers me. When you have the source reporting the quality of what you're getting, it's like the fox watching the hen house, right? Like your ad agency right. that makes the buys or is then telling you how well you're performing. <laughs> That is true. And, you know, what we also wanted to do, this is one of the lessons I've learned being in analytics is, or in general in life is, you know, you don't have to tell the other person what to do, but arm them with the right information and let them do what's the right thing for what they've been hired to do, right? So a paid media analyst job is out there to maximize that spend that we have that he or she has allocation for. That's how he or she is measured on a daily basis or on, you know, on a basis. So I can actually take those algorithms and be more prescriptive about what they should be doing. But I think we leave that in the good hands of the analysts that, hey, make the right decisions. So there's still an element of unknown in these models is a human aspect of it. Mm-hmm. You cannot lose touch with that part of it of, you know, someone knows and says, hey, you know, I did that campaign. But it had brought in low LTV, but there was a reason for it. And the reason was X, Y, Z. So I'm still going to do that because I'm still going after that piece. And is that where the primary research starts to come back in when you try to keep in sync with the human part? Or is there, how do you stay in touch with that? How do you see what's not in the data? So primary research comes in back into play is when the data that you're seeing either is telling you some trends and you don't understand why. Mm. An example of that would be, let's say, a person who comes on the website, who went and saw an ad either on TV or, or through paid media acquisition. They come on the website, they start filling the form, and then they just say, oh, not for me. Let me just get out. I don't want to do anything with it. So your funnel reports will say, hey, 10% of the people dropped off while filling the form. But why did they fell off? You don't know. So that's where you want to reach out to them and say, hey, what happened? Did we scare you when you were on the site when you were filling the form? Or did the experience or, you know, so, so the funnel can continue going on and you know, someone would engage with you once and twice. And so you want to understand from these people as to what is it about your services or, or their experiences that they've been like? And that's where you want to do the primary research. That makes sense. Uh, let's come back to the LTV for a second. In some companies, when they've rolled out LTV, the 
models are, you know, maybe not as tight as they could be in the beginning, and they end up with a little bit of backtracking and adjustment time. Did you have that in the LTV models that you rolled out, or how did you make sure that they were as tight as possible? That is a loaded question, but I'll answer to the best of my abilities, right? Okay. What happens is at the very high level, when we are looking at a lifetime value of a customer, when you aggregate it at the, the highest level, we come out within a 2 to 3% range. The models that are at the highest level as good as that. We can vouch for that. Now, just to clarify uh, for we, our listeners, when you say that it comes out within a 2 to 3% range, what you're saying is that when you project forward and you test backward, the match between those two lines is within 2 to 3% accuracy. Is that yeah, right? The yeah. The predicted versus actual is within a close range. Got it. Now, the way you use the data is where you may see the variances being high. Now you want to understand uh, basically the LTV for not just the LTV of a customer overall, but when you are looking at the customer from a certain source, because that's how the data is being used. Ah. Right? Because I don't care if you at the aggregate level, I do an awesome job, but when I am sitting at my desk and I have that $50,000 to spend on a certain source, is my data accurate at the source level or not? Because that will drive how much I can, I have the power to spend or not. Now that's tricky, isn't it? Because I've added a slice to the data that depends on so many identification pieces coming through, has so many dependencies really in order to make that call. Yeah, what we do is, so it's not only a, a cut, but a thousand cuts of the data because you have thousands of sources. Mm -hmm. So this is where it gets a little tricky, but what we have in an aggregate when we have done by source, the models that we have built are pretty intense. And on an average, they are about 12 to 13% in range from predicted to the actual. Mm -hmm. A lot better than gut feel, which is how most people were in. Yes. And in some cases where, you know, you have a lot of stable sources. So what happens is the algorithms are ultimately bound by what data you have. You just started on a source today and people coming from that source, I have no idea about how they are going to interact or because, you know, there's no previous history. Because there's no previous history, predictions are going to be not as good plain and simple as that. Got it. So what this is now a user education and we tell our users or the analysts that, hey, when you're starting a new source, don't go and rely on that LTV on day zero, day one, day two. Wait for about 30 days for it to build. Let the algorithms learn what's going on. And then, you know, you start spending more or less after you get about 30 days of activities in there, because I feel I'll be more confident in the LTVs that are coming out at that level. Got it. However, Got it. on the other side of the spectrum, if you are looking at a very standard source with whom we have advertised like, you know, every day because they generally provide good LTVs the predictions on that are as close as 2%, 1%, because you can do a pretty good job in predicting those sources. Nice. 
Now, am I right in thinking about our definitions earlier that this modeling is a combination of machine learning and deep learning, or is it all deep learning to run these models? It is all machine learning, actually, not even deep learning. We don't use as much deep learning here because, you know, it's you're dealing with mostly structured data. Okay. But isn't digital analytics behavior unstructured naturally, or are you forcing it into a structure? No, it is structured. What do you mean it is not structured? I'm thinking of the Adobe feed <laughs> and how, you know, what a mess that is coming out when you've got hit level data. Oh, my God. Yeah, but it is all structured. It may not be clean, which is a process that you go through to clean the data, but it is still structured that you can still make sense of it. Got it. Someone went in, wrote something good, bad, or ugly on a blog or on Facebook. Now, that is natural language. And you have to do NLP, which is natural language processing algorithms. NLP is where you use a lot of deep learning algorithms as well. You can use some machine learning too, but you know, I think the deep learning is where the NLPs come into place. Got it. Okay. So let's say, and, and this has been a fantastic example. Thank you for going into so much detail here. But let's say that I'm convinced and I'm super excited about AI and particularly machine learning. I want to take action. How would I start? Well, I would say that the simplest way to start is it's not about using AI or AI within machine learning or deep learning. I would say start by asking a question, what business problem you have to solve? Mm-hmm. And that will determine what kind of machine learning or deep learning algorithms that you will be able to use. So that's the starting point. Now, you may be able to, for example, if you are trying to build a product recommendation engine, if you're trying to predict customer behavior, for example, understanding any patterns or preferences so that you can uh, tailor some of the experiences for them, use machine learning. If you're trying to do anything with unstructured data, like you know, if you're trying to build a customer service application, a self-service application, there's a lot of voice recognition and voice learning process. Or if you're looking at social media habits, trying to predict you know, purchase on your site through there, I would say use deep learning algorithms. And on top of it, what talent do you already have in-house will determine that as well. That's great. And I'm also going to, for our audience, I'm going to link to an article that we surfaced in the Signal newsletter from Rob May at Tala.com, where he talks about a framework for non-technical business owners to figure out how to use AI in their business. And it's framed by predict, automate, classify, and then you list the rows of your business. So we'll include that, which it can help you think about where it makes sense to use these techniques. But thank you for those suggestions. And also, you're going to be speaking at our conference in a couple weeks at the Customer Centricity Conference. Thank you for that. Thank you. I'm excited for that as well. Now, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? The best is to reach me through LinkedIn, I would say, because that's the simplest. All of us can be reached there, and we can take it from there. 
that sounds good. Now let me do a quick summary here and at the end you can tell me if I missed anything major but we talked about why you should care about the relationship between CLV and AI and in particular we talked about the definitions as well which was super helpful but it comes back to when your focus for these calculations is not conversion but customer lifetime value then these techniques in the example you used was machine learning can point you to to powerful areas of impact. And those areas of impact are also subject to the ongoing nature of LTV. So you can see day one, day two, day three, day five, which I think is fantastic, which almost creates a self-correcting cycle, I guess. The LTV is always updating and is always being handled. So in paid media, which we all feel is an area that's probably ripe for correction in, in terms that there's a lot of spend and there's probably a lot of area for optimization, this application of machine learning and LTV is incredibly powerful, as you've pointed out. And then finally, we talked about how to bring this into your own business. That's a difficult question, but in many cases, everyone I talk to comes back to use cases. You have to understand the business use cases, but I love that you called out specific examples of when to use which tool. So Ash, did I miss anything there? Is there anything else you want to call out? No, I think you summarized it perfectly. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, as always, links to everything we discuss are at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Ash, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just always a pleasure chatting with you. Same here. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to your podcast, Allison. Remember, everyone, when you can use your data effectively, you really can build customer equity over time. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.